Welcome to episode 89 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, our guest is David Cancel. David is CEO of Performable.com and founder of Compete.com. Hey, David, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, guys, thanks for having me. So, David, we invited you on because you've done a lot of cool startups. Um, you've had a whole slew of them that we'd like to talk to you about. And uh, your, your most recent um, startup is Performable, which does uh, some analytics, um, provides yes. some analytics services, which seems really um, interesting to me because we haven't covered that a lot on our show. And I think mm-hmm. it plays a really important role um, for startups. And I don't know if it's talked about a lot. So maybe we should start with uh, a little overview from you of what Performable is and how you got started on it. Sure. So uh, Performable is a web analytics software. And um, we're really focused in on the customer lifecycle. And so what we had seen with you know Google Analytics and all these kind of analytic tools that are out there is that they're all still focused kind of back in the stone age around page views and hits and unique visitors. And we had got to a place where you know, our website was just one piece of um, one place that people were interacting with us. They're actually interacting with us on multiple channels, and we were still talking about them as hits and page views and not people. And so we're customer-centric web analytics, and, um, you know, we're multi-channel, and that we're not just for your website, but we also integrate into your support system or your uh, video playbacks uh, or your, you know, CRM if you're that kind of business. And so to give you a real kind of view on what's working for your customers. And do you track a single, I mean, do you get to the point where you can track a single customer through Absolutely. all of those different subsystems? Absolutely. So in our system, you would be, when you're looking uh, at a, you know, down to a segment and then you can drill in, you can actually see, here's Justin Vincent, here's Jason Roberts, my customers, not just uh, uniques, page views and these uh, abstract measures. Wow. Do, do, you, do you hook into, I mean, maybe this is asking a bit too much, but do you hook into CRM stuff as well so that you can track the, your interactions with them? Absolutely. We interact with uh, most of the major CRM systems, including Salesforce and Microsoft's and um, uh, NetSuite and a couple other ones like that. That's just amazing. So many of the interactions for our customers happen offline, right? It might be a salesperson or it might be a support person who's interacting with someone. And we all, uh, especially with support folks and support phone calls, we've all gone through that process of calling in and having stuff over and over. I'm David Cancel. I'm David Cancel. Who are you? I'm a customer of yours, you know? And uh, because these systems are not connected in any way, and that's, that's the problem we're trying to solve. You know, because there's a lot of different analytics companies I've seen pop yep. up, and mm-hmm. you you seem like you perform a number of different analytics. I mean, one of it is sort of the in-page analytics, right, where yep. you can tell what people are clicking and how, mm-hmm. I don't know, like heat maps and stuff. Is is that right? Is that one of the things you do? Uh, we don't do like uh, tip what most people would know as heat maps, but we answer this, some of the same questions. So it's not a graphical heat map, but what we're doing, what we're solving is um, helping cut. Co- companies understand what's working, what's not working, and what can I do about what's not working, right, for my customers. And our customers are e-commerce companies, they're uh, B2B companies, you know, people who are interested in people to sign up for their program, and, and then tons of web, what we call web applications that are people who are just like, like your site, you know, who are just might be optimizing for people to sign up for your newsletter. And so we do something that we call flipping the funnel, 
right? Okay. Or reverse funnel metrics. And instead of what we found through our customers and our own is that this notion of a linear funnel, step one, step two, step three, they purchase, doesn't really exist. That does doesn't exist on the web today. People are interacting with your sales team, with your support team, with you through email, on your website. They may, it may take them 15 times, uh, 15 visits to your website before they actually convert. That can't be mapped out in the linear funnel. And so in our system, all you do is tell us, this is all I care about. I care about getting registrations, or I care about people purchasing a product or a service. And then we do the hard work for you by going back, uh, putting everyone who reaches that goal into a, a cohort and uh, analyzing that cohort and then pulling out the things that are different about that segment versus your entire uh, website population or your customer base. And so we could tell you like, hey, did you know it takes you know, three phone calls before someone actually signs up for a plan. Or maybe it takes them, uh, they have to have answered, you know, three support requests uh, before actually signing up for a customer. Or they have to view these three pages that a lot of people on your site don't actually look at. So you might not think they're important just by looking at Google Analytics, but for the cohort of people who are actually converting, they all seem to be looking at these pages. Right. Okay. Okay. So if if I'm if I'm wanting to integrate Performable mm-hmm. into my web application, um, what are the steps? Is it like including some JavaScript like Google Analytics, and, yep. and how does it work? The easiest uh, the way that you get started is just put some JavaScript across your site, just like you okay. would with Google Analytics, and then you can take it. Uh, depending on your business, you can take it. Uh, further, you might integrate. You might be doing email campaigns through Mailchimp, and so you'll tell us about that, and then we'll integrate with Mailchimp for you. How do you do? How does that work? Just to, like just regarding the mail, let's say the Mailchimp process. How do we plug into Mailchimp? So uh, we do it in two ways. We uh, one way is that uh, you can actually create uh, forms and surveys and uh, within our system, and those get piped automatically into Mailchimp for you or into Salesforce, or into multiple um, places for you. And, uh, and once they get piped in, then we know who that user is. That's Justin Vincent. Uh, the, the other way that we pipe into uh, MailChimp is that we will tag your, camp, uh, your email campaigns for you so that when someone clicks on, let's say, a MailChimp email you sent out uh, and they land on your website, we know that that was Justin Vincent. He just clicked on this link on your, um, in this email newsletter, and we might, that might surface up later and, uh, when you look at a segment and say, everyone who checked out today came from this email campaign and clicked on this third link here that was about hmm. this subject. Cool. Well, I mean, so the JavaScript that's on that's included in the web page, I mean, that seems to infer quite a bit of information. Is there any sort of customization that the user would need to do to to sort of explain to Performable this is what's going on at this on these pages? These are sort of um, certain steps in the process. Uh, they they do do that in two ways. One is within our web interface, you just go in and say, "Hey, you know what? All I care about are these two pages." checkout and email sign up. And from now on, everything that we tell you and report on are based on those two pages, right? So you can understand what's working for those uh, two pages and what's not. And then um, the other way that you can customize is in the JavaScript or through our API, you can pass Uh in additional information at runtime while while the page is loading. And people use that to, let's say, uh, when someone... uh, 
purchase of the product, they might pass in, hey, they just purchased a Sharpie pen for $1.99. And so then that is attached uh, to the customer profile within Performable. Right. Um, now, it, it, I think I saw you do some terp type of A-B testing as well. Yep. Is that right? And, so yes. how, how does that integrate with A-B testing versus the uh, funnel analysis? Okay. So the we also... We offer, and this is how we actually started, uh, a system to do very simple, um, to make it really simple to do A-B testing. And the way that it integrates is you can create a test, and that can be a standalone test, but you could also segment your traffic so that you can say, people who are email subscribers, I want to, uh, this test to only show up for those folks. Everyone else will not be included in this test. Or people who came in today from Google uh, searching for pens, we're going to test something for just that segment of the population. Um, okay. So you can do that like at runtime, and then, or you can do it based on the customer history, which may not have been captured with and performable. So you could say, my best MailChimp subscribers, they're only going to see this test, or they're only going to see this content. Right. Now, I looked at your pricing plan, and I, a mm -hmm. couple things that I found interesting about it. So your, your cheapest plan, I think, was $200 a month? So Correct. my I, first thing I'd like to ask is, um, well, I guess one thing I'd, 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 I'd sort of infer from that is this must create a lot of value for your customers if they're willing to pay a minimum of 200 So I'm guessing that if you use the software correctly, that you're gonna, you are going to make a, an improvement in your conversions by, a, by some substantial amount. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and so <laughs> we're actually on our uh, fourth price increase uh, this year. Wow. And, uh, yeah. Well, that's <laughs> great. I, I mean, that's awesome. I mean, I've, I've, we've talked about that. Actually, I'd like to talk to you about that. So, sure. Because you hear that, like, you know, you can start your pricing low, and it's easy to increase because if, if, if you make, if you sell for $10 a month, and then you raise it to 20 and there's no drop-off, you're like, well, I guess I was underpriced. It's like, mm -hmm. you can increase your pricing and, or and change it, I guess, but you definitely can increase it. And I'm curious, so how did your, where did your pricing start, and, how, and, and what has been your, yeah. changing, your, your changes along the way? So we, went, we started with uh, having our lowest plan be $29 and our highest plan be, uh, was $599. And now our lowest plan is 200 and the highest is 5000 That's a pretty significant wow. shift. And, 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 and yeah. in what so, period of time <laughs> and, and what steps have you been putting that out? Um, since we, went pub we launched publicly in July, this past July. So a uh, very wow. short period of time. So I guess because you're a metrics company or analytics company, <laughs> you were able to do that, figure that out pretty quickly. And I'm, by the way, I'm just going to yeah. keep interrupting Justin. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so we did. You know, we, what we were doing was experimenting. We knew that um, when we started that who our enemy and the, the company that we're going after and trying to replace ultimately is Omniture. I'm not sure if you guys have used Omniture, but it's an enterprise yeah, yeah. analytics company. Okay. We're not competing with uh, Google Analytics, which is a free product and great product. We're, we're really complete competing with Omniture. And, you know, customers who use Omniture are paying much more than they are paying for us. Even today, you know, they're paying $10,000, $15,000 a month, usually on average, some a lot more than that. And... Um, and so, but what we were experimenting was with was, could we do something that was very similar to what Salesforce did in the CRM space, right? Siebel and SAP and all these companies were around. Uh, Salesforce came out, came out with a platform that um, 
was easy to implement, was cheap to get started, and uh, didn't require a lot of integration work. And they priced very low. And so that's what we were experimenting with, like how low could our pricing go? And, you know, how wide could our market go? And uh, we got, we signed up a ton of customers that in the lower price points. But what we found was that they weren't the best customers for us because the stuff that we're doing is complicated uh, conceptually relative to something like Google Analytics. And uh, so a lot of them were more like, you know, uh, some startups and some like Soho businesses that really weren't understanding the value. And even though they were paying customers, we didn't think that they'd be using the tool that heavily. And of course, we, I'm a measurement geek. And so we measured a lot about around who were the people who were using our software the most. And it turned out to be those uh, disgruntled Omniture customers who were, you know, may have been paying us $5.99 a month, but they were paying $15,000 a month for the same solution uh, through Omniture. And so we kept, um, we knew our pricing was off, so we kept experimenting and we've gotten to where we are now only a few months later. And I still think our, our, our pricing is probably wrong. Okay, so what were, the sta- what were the steps? Like, was like two weeks later you went to 39 or 59? I'd be curious how that Yeah, we went, we, actually the path was we started with 99, 299 and 599. And then, okay. we're, and then a few weeks later we're thinking, you know, are we turning away people because, you know, our, um, we just arbitrarily chose those price points. We actually did a, a ton of customer interviews and those mm-hmm. are the price points that surfaced up. So we start, we introduced a $29.49 plan, started to uh, test around that and got a ton of um, customers from that. But, you know, that's when we started to see, well, those customers were behaving differently with the tool, right? They were um, probably taking a lot more su- support time. From us, mm-hmm. and they weren't a- as active a user as someone who was had who was paying us five ninety nine a month, and uh, and so we kept experimenting there, and we would go back and talk to people, and of course we always grandfather anyone in, so we have people still paying us twenty nine dollars, uh, but today you couldn't get uh, our our stuff for less than two hundred dollars a month, and we'll honor right. that forever because they took a chance on us early on, and we kept going back and forth and talking to our customers and. Um, would test new pricing increases, and that's how we've gotten to where we are. One of the aspects of someone paying two hundred bucks for the basic is that, given that your system mm-hmm. is complicated to understand, they're also because they've invested more money, they are more willing mm-hmm. to put the time into understanding how it works. That you're, you've nailed it right there, Justin. That's exactly it. And so uh, that you know, in our user interviews, e- even for the folks that were paying five ninety nine a month. Um, we'd start talking to them and they would start saying things like, you know, oh, you know, I love Reformable. And we would say, oh, how'd you find it? And we're like, oh, we're just playing with it. And, but I thought it was a toy. And it just a toy. Why was it a toy? Mm. Because of the pricing, right? So the, you know, signaling with the price. We thought, but it's actually much better than what we were using with Omniture. But, you know, um, you know, we just were playing around with it. We thought it was just this nice little, neat little toy that we were playing with. And then we kept running into more and more of that. And actually, as we would talk to people who, um, outside of our customer base, who had looked at the tool and we would interview them, uh, we would run into customers who, or, or prospective customers, who actually didn't sign up because uh, they didn't think that our service could uh, deal with their size of business. Right? They, they just outrightly dismissed it. Another thing is, is that 
it looks like it looks like the current startup that's going to be priced at uh, you know 1999 that's what it just looks like just the basic look and feel of it to me well because it because it, there's those old ones have this kind of old stodgy yeah. kind of <laughs> cookie cutter look and yeah. then they and then they don't show you their pricing and some guys going to yeah. call you up to tell you it's $10,000 it's yeah. you know it's kind of very it's very clean and very modern <laughs> it's something that it looks like it would have come out of Y combinator and and the the, the thing about it is is I'm wondering whether that look and feel fits the price target that you are then going for that's my only thoughts there yeah uh right. we don't think it does we're actually releasing a new uh version of our say today uh so later <laughs> today it'll be different yeah i love the way performable looks i was about to say i, I think it looks awesome so. it, it, it won't be that far off but i think the messaging some of our messaging is off but jason we've spoken about signaling so much haven't we i mean and th- this is a classic case of signaling yeah. right Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, 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 we had this one discussion, what they call like hipster, intellectual hipsterism, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, it's all about signaling. So like when people, uh, what was it called, like old right. money and new money, right? So people yep. who are new in money will say, hey, I, I look at my fancy car or my watch because they want to demonstrate, look, I have money. I'm no longer mm-hmm. poor. But the people who are from old money don't want to, they, they sort of counter signal and say, look, I, we have so much money. We, I've grown up with money. My family's from yep. money. I don't wear flashy stuff. I am old money because I don't want to associate with them because we, don't, we look down on the new money, right? So it's a <laughs> signaling. I think that's what Performable is doing to, uh, to the whole Y Combinator thing. Like they're, they're like, no, we're, we're, we're beyond the Y Combinator concept. We, we are, we're like seriously <laughs> <Yeah>. high price point. <laughs> well, it's like you guys are cute and all, and like, we love yeah. you, but you know, we, we're not $10 yeah. a month. exactly and uh you know it took and you know it's funny because it took a lot of conversations to to get through to us right you know when we'd have these people who were just like telling us that they were outright dismissing us you know great and they are great customers now uh but it was just based on our pricing and based on the way that we looked and felt right we and and we don't want to replicate some stodgy old enterprise uh, software site, and I don't think we will. But uh, our, our messaging was definitely off. Well, I can tell you a site that I, that I've used that looks like it's going to cost about five hundred bucks a month. That's Compete dot com. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so you've already you've already got some people working for you who, who know how to get that message across. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, it's funny, but uh, you know, I always have to relearn these lessons <laughs> over and over. So I'm especially <laughs> dense. So when you went through this pricing increase, I mean. Well, it, it almost seems like you can almost throw any price out there and then adjust mm-hmm. because if, if it's too high and people aren't buying it and you go lower, that's fine, right? And if the people mm-hmm. who bought it higher, you say, look, we'll, we'll give you the new price or we refund you if they felt like – like if you were charging people $100 a month and you lower it to $20 a month, those people might be kind of pissed off about it. Exactly. In which case, you can say, ah, there wasn't, that many, there wasn't that many of them and that's why we're lowering the price, so we'll put you in the new price. Mm-hmm. And if you – raise your price, you can grandfather the people in who are lower. So in either case, you're covered. But it seems to me that it, it matters less where you start. It's just more where you end up. Yeah, agreed. Right? And yeah, and for us, you know, it was just the, the, the main part was being transparent with our customers and always uh, grandfathering the plan that they came in on because we were always going up in price. And, uh, you know, there are very lots of happy folks who – you know, we're paying us a small amount of money now and getting the same amount of service. Yeah. We'll be like buying Apple stock at 30 bucks. You're like, sweet. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm awesome. I bought it when it was cheap. I'm, I'm you know, I, uh, I mean, I I'm it. an insider. Yeah. With Performable, 
Um, someone like me, like I think mm-hmm. I would like to be a customer of yours, but 200 bucks is pretty expensive and 14 days isn't a long time for me to try mm-hmm. it out for free. But what I would really need to yep. understand is what it is and how great it is and, and how, how I can apply it to my business. So I'm wondering, is there or are you going to have some form of very detailed video tutorials or, or ebook tutorials so that yep. I can go through it and really understand web analytics and how this this way of working with web analytics can grow my business. So I can basically you go, yeah, you know what? I'm going to spend 200 bucks rather than spending you know nothing with Google. Oh, absolutely. That's what we're working on now. So uh, the, the good news for us is that our product and the use of our product by our customers is way ahead of our marketing, uh, way ahead of, like light years. Uh, the bad news is that, you know, that we have this big education gap and marketing gap, and that's what we're focusing on fixing right now. And that includes a new website and having videos and screenshots and uh, case studies and then, you know, having pages that are really tell you like how people in your industry are using the product because all of that is completely missing from our website today. And we know that. There was a, a piece of software that I caught, uh, bought a few years back called Brad Callen's SEO Elite or something. And um, they had like 20 hours worth of video material that very detailedly explained the system and how to use it. And I found that so helpful, and I basically watched it over the course of a couple of weeks. And by the by, the end of it, I really understood why the software was good and how the software worked. So, thanks for the tip. I just searched on that, and I am uh, going to uh, to take a look at this after our uh, interview. Well, you know, because Justin Justin actually did a lot of screencasts for one of his, um, well, actually both of his products. One being Plugio, which is like this automated uh, Twitter um, client. Oh yeah, yeah, and. I, I, Justin, if I'm correct, you said that you saved a ton of time in customer support because the video you spent the time on the videos once, and your customers would tend to use those to learn about features and understand them rather than contact you asking questions. And so that was a big savings for you ultimately, right? Exactly. Yeah. So so basically, on the front page, I've got a list of exactly how to do everything on the system, talking through it and how it works. And also then with the sort of side chat of saying, and this is why that's a benefit and this is, you know, this is how that's useful for you. Yep. So pretty much the whole thing's open without them having to sign up. That's awesome. I'm going to uh, take a look at that as well after this. No, we need to do a much better job then. These are some great models for us. And, uh, you know, usually I've been in the other scenario where the uh, marketing is light years ahead of the product. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Hey, Jason, do you, do you mind if we talk about Compete.com a little bit? Yeah, sure. Well, can, can we put that off? Because I want to ask a little bit more about Performable, if that's okay. Okay. Just, just hold your horses. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. So, well, I want to ask, first of all, what gave you the idea for Performable? How would you get started on it? Actually, Compete gave me the idea. <laughs> so, okay. uh, so, my time at Compete. So, you know, every, most people know Compete because of Compete.com. Uh, but Compete.com was only my personal project at Compete. Our real site is called Compete Inc. And our real 95% of our revenues at Compete come from selling to Fortune 100, Fortune 50 companies. And uh, we, in those companies, we sell inside of different industries and we normally sell to kind of a CMO of those companies. And, uh, you know, Compete.com when I, uh, was something that I started much later in the company as a kind of like a side fun project. But, you know, at Compete, 
when I we would um, sell our subscription services to these companies, and that was very expensive. You know, that was uh, our average price point was three hundred fifty thousand dollars per year per uh, product line, and um, because and so when we would sell into those folks, you know, we would basically be telling them here's how they're doing, here's best practices in their industry, here's where they're failing, here are the things that they need to do in order to capture more market share. And, uh, you know, they would always come back to us and say the same thing. You know, they'd say, you know, I hear you, I believe it, I love it, and, you know, but I can't do it. And just and it was frustrating every time. And we'd just like, why can't you do it? And it's like, oh, because, you know, I don't actually control the website, you know, because I have to go through fifteen internal political committees in here in my company and the IT department won't talk to me and, you know, whatever. So they couldn't they never had operational control. Or worse yet, they had paid an agency to build a website for them. So again, they had no control over this, but they were wasting all this money and uh, time for all of their customers with these websites that weren't optimal uh, and weren't being optimized. And, you know, so at Performable, we wanted to uh, build a platform that made it easy for them to actually take action. And our, our web analytics are all around telling them what's working, what's not. Here's the next step for them to do. And we also layer in some creation tools, right? You can create A-B tests. You can create pages uh, using Performable so that the, the marketing department can actually do this without having to go and jump through hoops internally uh, through their IT team or through uh, a bunch of different departments. So it really came out of my time at Compete and seeing the frustrations of our marketers and, and answering a different pain for them, a more operational and kind of day-to-day pain. Just from, from a personal point of view, mm-hmm. uh, where do you come from? Are you like a bootstrapper or do you, are you like a, a theory kind of person? I mean, where, <laughs> what's, how have you become an entrepreneur that you are? Uh, brain damage, I think, is the... Is the <laughs> yeah, it's a, I have a mental problem. So, uh, <laughs> so my background is uh, I'm up until Performable. I've been a serial CTO and founder of companies. Uh, so I'm an engineer. And, um, you know, when I got out of graduated school light years uh, ago, um, the Internet wasn't really around commercially. Uh, it was just in our lab. And so, you know, I spent some time doing some consulting work, a couple of years only out of school, and then started my, joined uh, a group of three people and started uh, working on my first startup with them, which was a site called Bolt.com, and that was in 1996. And we were basically um, a Facebook for uh, teens. And we were really targeted at like 13 to 17-year-olds and grew that pretty big. And uh, we almost went public with that company, but, you know, it didn't happen as many companies uh, back then. Mm-hmm. But, you know, even that company, which was really a social network for teens was really built around this concept of uh, building a labs function, right? So that uh, brands and marketers, this was back in New York, so very uh, marketing focused, could understand uh, what teens were into, right? The most fickle audience. What were they interested in? What were they talking about? What were the trends? And that's why we ended up with investors like um, Ford, Motor Company, AOL was an investor, and then we had some venture capital investors as well. Uh, and so that was my first kind of startup. And, uh, and then I spent some time at Lycos, search engine, uh, in the research team. Uh, but 
very briefly, and then I had to go do another startup. Uh, and again, all my startups are pretty much the same. They're kind of like at the, um, you know, in between the crossroads of like marketing, big data, uh, analytics, somewhere in there. And, uh, and that's how I went off and started Compete in 2000, the end of 2000. Um, so you started Compete or Compete.com or how did that? Yep. Yep. Compete, which was one in the same back then. And, okay. uh, Started that. So you were founder of the Compete.inc company as well as the side project of the Compete.com? Yeah, yes. Okay. Correct. Uh, so I started Compete Inc. in uh, November of 2000. And mm-hmm. so that was post-bubble, if you were around back then. So the right. bubble had dot-com bubble had burst. It was like the worst possible time to start a company. And, uh, but for some reason, I did. And um, started with one other co-founder. And uh, he was like the business guy. And he had come from syndicated research world. Uh, but he, was, he stayed with us only for the first nine months of business. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started this thing and um, raised some venture capital. Luckily, we're able to, and then, you know, spent the next three years, you know, really uh, in the worst kind of market environment ever. Uh, I'm amazed that you were able to actually raise money at that time. That's <laughs> I don't know. Is it, something else that's it was a miracle. also amazing about this is that Bolt, yes. right, which is very, very consumer, yep. you know, teen, teen focused. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to hear like an entrepreneur who's successfully grown a business that's teen focused and, and very consumer focused. Mm-hmm. And then something that's, you know, Fortune 500 focused. Yep. Like that's, those are two totally different marketing processes. Like how did you wrap your head around that? Uh, you know, to me, they were actually the same uh, <laughs> in, in my brain, my crazy brain, because, you know, we, we were, Bolt was one project that we had that actually turned into a company. We actually had two. We had uh, this thing called Girls on Film, which was uh, really like a network of blogs today. But back then, there was no such thing. But it was, you know, four girls who wrote movie reviews uh, who were like 20-something-year-old girls. And um, our idea was that we were going to start all these what we call community properties. Uh, Today, they'd just be like social networks. Um, And that we were going to learn a ton about them, about those kind of audiences, and um, sell that data to marketers. Again, we were in New York. And uh, those were our friends, you know, people who worked in marketing agencies and advertising agencies. So they were actually, you know, our customer. Uh, and so it's very much the same customer, even though the, the product itself and the users were really um, consumer focused. Uh, to me, they're, they're actually the same. I've been building the same thing. I, I guess at the point I'm making is this, the, the product itself, it's, I mean, we're kind of glossing over the fact that it's really difficult to build a successful social network of teams yes. like that. <laughs> like that itself is right. a whole big deal and issue. So right. making that part successful is very, very good alongside also selling to the fortune. 500. Yeah, you're right. Uh, we were selling to the same people, but yeah, growing the, uh, the team thing was really hard and we grew pretty large. We were the, you know, our users used to stay on back in 1996, 97, uh, an average of 56 minutes per, per session. You know, we were the second uh, biggest, uh, what we, they called community site uh, back then that, that was around. Today would be a social network. The first was iVillage. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, that was an incredible experience. Now, you, I would just get back and find out how you were actually able to raise money when the market was crashing. How did that work out? <laughs> and that's like, that's uh, one of those, like, then a miracle happened and yeah, we raised yeah, money. Yeah. Okay. 
So what's the story? It's funny. Like? So having gone through this process a lot, uh, you, you start to learn that it's, you know, so little of it is what people tell you, you know, business plan. We had no business plan. Uh, business plan or, you know, market or whatever. Uh, basically what it came down to now I can I understand what happened was we we had you know a series of slides and two people and uh, some angel investors uh, from a company called Idea Lab had in, invested so an angel yeah that's actually uh, right, Bill, right Bill Gross that's right here in Pasadena where I live yeah uh, yeah so Bill Gross had invested an angel round you know a small like one hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars into compete and but then thirty days later we ended up raising the Series A and what it came down to. It was that uh, we met this investor at Charles River Ventures and uh, here in Boston, and we pitched him. And I swear the reason that he invested in us was that I had at Lycos stolen someone away from him from one of his companies, and right. that he could not. Uh, he was not used to people saying no. Right to him, <laughs> and uh, and so he was. He finally had met me and said, you know, this was the guy who actually stole this guy who I offered the world to and uh, turned me down to go work with him. And you know, it was that, and it was one other thing that he had. In a, he was a data guy, and he had been thinking about. He had. He was already predisposed to wanting to do something like compete, and had right. been thinking about this. You know, both of these things, I had no idea. Until years later, I kind of pieced them together. But those were really the reasons, right? That was it. So Alexa was your, your competitor with Compete, right? Uh, with Compete.com, the free stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and do you feel you've done a good job at uh, kind of taking a slice of their pie? Oh, absolutely. I don't think they really exist in much of a form anymore. Um, so they were a main competitor with the Compete.com product. So the way that things right. happened were was... We actually had built a version of Compete, what you see as Compete.com, back in 2000. But the problem was that nobody cared, right? Nobody cared at all about Compete.com back then in 2000. Again, you know, uh, .com disaster had just happened, and there was no Google, you know, SEM. There was no, you know, no one, people were still doubting whether anyone could actually make any money on the Internet. So the, yeah. you know, there was no reason to really care about a, a service that measured you the way that we did at Compete that you can do today at Compete.com. So we shelved that pretty quickly because we couldn't get anybody to care, even for free, uh, about that product. And we, what we ended up doing was um, we used that same set of data and we disguised it uh, and and built some vertical solutions around it and went and sold to these larger companies. And we had to disguise it because uh, at the time, none of them wanted to buy anything. If you said the word internet, uh, you would get laughed at. And we got laughed mm. out of many offices, right? It, they just had no interest whatsoever in it. And so we had to really position around, uh, well, we're helping you understand your consumer behavior. Yes, we're using clickstream data to do that, but you know, that was secondary. Uh, you know, our primary thing is helping you understand consumer uh, demand and behavior. And so we had, to, yeah, we had to disguise it as almost like strategy work versus um, what it is. So it's I all about timing. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and speaking of, I don't know, I mean, this is sort of related to timing, is launching a product. And it's something we've talked, Jess and I have been talking about a little bit on our uh, discussion shows. And I'd be curious to find out 
how you launched Performable. I mean, did you market before you actually launched? Um, what was your sort of, okay. I guess, launch strategy? Yeah, so with Performable, we took a, I took a different path than with some of my other companies. Um, you know, at first, we weren't going to raise any venture capital for it, and I had seeded the business my, personally. Um, but then we got a, you know, we were got a great offer from the same investors that invested in Compete, Charles River Ventures, and we ended up taking a, a Series A uh, last year when we started. Uh, but okay. you know, uh, part of the discussion from the beginning was, even though if we take this uh, investment, we were still going to operate like we're a bootstrap company. So for the first six months of the business, we were, you know three and a half of us, you know, the founding team, we weren't going right. to, we didn't have an office. We didn't have anything. We were spending all of our time, a hundred percent of our time talking with, uh, early alpha and beta customers that we had. That's all we focused in on. And then, um, then we started to hire in around May of this year. Um, so you waited to get a little traction in a little, what I guess they call product market fit as Sean Ellis exactly. described. Exactly. Right. And then Sean's actually an advisor to Performable. Uh, yeah. Great, great guy. And we learned a lot. Sean was actually, Ellis was our, our first super, super duper alpha uh, user. And so he helped us. Uh, he influenced the product a lot from the experience he had in working with other startups that were trying to answer the questions you can answer with uh, Performable. And so, yeah, we stood, we spent all our time on product market fit, kind of obsessed about getting to product market fit, and, uh, and then only grew when we felt that we had, we understood uh, the product and the market that we were going after cold, uh, okay, which I'd is... Like, I'm yep. sorry, go on, go on. No, go ahead, well, which is, you I, know... I, yeah. <laughs> Jason, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> go on, go on. Uh, no, I was just going to say uh, it uh, it's totally makes sense and follows the, the Steve Blank kind of model of customer development. Right. So I, I, all I was going to say, it was kind of like we're like in a hallway and we both turn left and right. We're trying to get past each yeah. other, you know? <laughs> okay. So I, I'd like to dig into that a little bit. Okay. Because people talk about product market fit and we did this and that, sure. but I don't know if anyone really understands what that means. So yep. you have this idea and there's like a, a couple of your, three of you kind of working on it. I mean, how long did you work on it before you even started talking to people? And then when you should start talking to people, what did you email like 50 of your friends or, I mean, what, what happened? We were very specifically. Uh, so with our product, we spent uh, zero days working on it before we actually got in front of customers. And, and so that was the difference, right? So at Compete and my other startups, we had spent, you know, six months or more working on a product, kind of just, just all of us engineers just sitting in a room working on a product. And then we developed something and then we would go out and show it to customers. And the difference here at Performable was before we even had anything, we didn't have a line of code, we didn't have anything. We were in front of customers and both offline, face-to-face -face, and online. We created a series of a, a large number of landing pages and started to test around those landing pages and trying to see, do people actually care? Do people take the next step and say, hey, I want to learn more. I'm interested. The, the landing pages that you created, um, how did you get people to those landing pages? All, all different ways. So we would um, email them out to people that we knew kind of in our networks. We did a lot of... Uh, advertising around specific terms and tests around terms, you know, mostly AdWords. We used um, StumbleUpon, 
We use Twitter. We use Facebook. We anything. We tried everything and anything to get people there. Uh, Stumble upon was actually a really good one. Suggest that to a lot of startups because um, because you don't need any intent really to get there. So it's one thing to type. You know, there are a lot of products that people are just not going to search for on Google. But, you know, if they just show up in the StumbleUpon index, right, as you're clicking along and you see an interesting site, you know, can you get someone who just stumbled on your site, never heard of your company, has no context to actually stop for a minute, care enough to actually click on that Learn More link? It's the Learn More link. That's what you're looking for. Basically, if they click on Learn More, then you know that it's interesting. Yeah, we know at least they care. Right, they cared. We hit on something that they cared about because, uh, you know, this is the medium that we need to operate on, right? The internet and uh, that random person just hitting a random thing is not very different than people coming to your website today, right? There's like five seconds before they leave, and could we get people to care about enough? So we kept testing messaging, product features. What were the products, the features that got people to stop and want to learn more about this product? Do you get anything beyond that once you get onto the, once they've clicked the learn more page and they get to the yeah, next page? Yeah, we ran a series of experiments uh, around that, and so we would do um, you know leave your email address here, fill out a survey, uh, connect with us on Twitter or Facebook. We ran a whole series of experiments, and that's how we started to build up a list of people. Um, who were interested in our product very early on, even before, again, before we had written anything. We had no code. Okay, I got, I got a few questions for you real quick. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, you said you built up an email list. I mean, how much of an email list did you build up before you, say, had a product that was ready to launch? Oh, we had uh, thousands of email addresses. Uh, I'm trying like to think. Like 2,000 or 3,000 or 50,000? No, like in the t- low tens of thousands. Wow. Okay. So you, you built up a big, uh, a big email list. So you knew you had interest and were ready to, mm-hmm. you, you sort of a receptive audience the minute you're ready to launch. Was that all through AdWords or was that through um, existing businesses such as Compete? Uh, no, no, not through Compete at all, but all through our experiments for performance. Like you said, through StumbleUpon, Twitter, Facebook, all the stuff that they just... All of that. Tried. So that whole combination and emailing people that we knew and just driving up interest. Okay, so, okay, two questions about this. The first is StumbleUpon. I mean, how, when you say we use StumbleUpon, I mean, how do you use StumbleUpon for this? I, I don't, I've never really used StumbleUpon, so I'm not familiar with it. Maybe some of our okay. listeners are, but I'm not really clear when you say, okay, we use StumbleUpon to test out interest in a product. What does that even mean? How do you do that? So, the, so the way that StumbleUpon works is uh, there are people who use the StumbleUpon toolbar or add-on for their browser, and they say, I'm interested in web development, let's say, as a category. And they'll, for some period of time, they'll stumble upon sites, which means they're clicking on the StumbleUpon toolbar, and they're being shown different sites. Just a random site. Yeah, just a random site. It's like the new version of like web rings that used to be around long ago. You're just stumbling across the web. And um, what StumbleUpon does is that uh, they have an advertising um, program that lets you become, become one of those sites in the index. And they do really well in that um, very few of the sites that you stumble upon are ads or have been put in the index uh, because of advertising. The rest, almost all of them are natural. But what that does okay. is it mixes you in with people who are interested in a certain category. Someone doesn't know whether this site has, is, was com- came in through an ad or just because it's popular and stumble upon. So, um, and then 
So that's great for you as someone who wants to test because the person who's being exposed to your page that to- at that point doesn't know, know that they actually came in through an advertisement. So that's very, very, very clever. I, I mean, just we've we've been kind of hearing a, about this um, a, a few times. Also, with our, uh, we've had talks with Mark Andrea about this, but just to kind of hear it discussed in full is really interesting. So what's interesting about this to me is that we... Um, we've interviewed Rob Walling of the Micropreneur Academy and Starbs of the rest of us. And one thing he talked about for these micropreneurs is that you, 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 if you put some AdWords out there, you test some AdWords for demand that people, uh, demand on a topic that people will be searching for. And then those lead to a landing page and you can collect email addresses and that, that helps you um, determine if there's demand for this this uh, you know this whatever this thing you're is you're building and also allows mm-hmm. you to an email list of interested um, of potentially interested customers interested users and now one thing we brought up is with him was so for instance the the project that I'm working on that I'm sort of bootstrapping on the side is called App Ignite and what it does is it allows non developers to build web applications without having to write code okay kind of using wizards and point and yeah. click and the question we had with him was okay well I'm I'm building something that most people don't really think is available or possible, right? I mean, if, they, if someone wants to build something, they got to go, okay, well, I got to learn to code or hire a coder or, or, or go to a consulting firm or something, right? Yep. So how do you do, how do you do this sort of demand, um, gauging demand and building interest for a product that's sort of a new product area? And it sounds to me like what you're talking about is with StumbleUpon, you can do that, right? Exactly. And your site would be perfect because they have categories uh, they might have a web development category or they might have a marketing category. And uh, depending on who you think your audience is, you can just find the right category of, you know, that, that matches up and then start to test your, your offering with a landing page. But the skill, the skill is, Jason, is going to be in analyzing the data. Yes. And I guess performable is the, the, the right tool to use for that, is it? Yeah, you can do it yourself, you know, if you want, but we make it way easier to be able to do that, for sure. Does, uh, how, how much money for, did you spend, for instance, on the StumbleUpon campaign? I mean, I, I mean, obviously it's not free, oh, so... Very little. Um, relative to something like Google AdWords, it's very cheap. And so, you know, we... We kept experimenting to find the right category, so we might start at, you know, a few bucks per day um, right. maximum, and then you know we probably got up to maybe a hundred dollars a week at our height um, wow. that we were doing it. So pretty, actually pretty cheap compared to um, AdWords. And did you find Stumble on gave stumble you better upon. value that Stumble upon gave you better value than AdWords uh, for our testing? Absolutely, it was much better. Uh, because mm. you know the keywords that that we would be interested in were really expensive on Google, and um, so we were able to capture a lot more people um, using StumbleUpon. So definitely, that's interesting. So well, that's really interesting to me because you know if I said all right, well I'm willing to put five hundred dollars into this or three hundred, mm-hmm. sounds like I could actually make some headway with that. It's not. Oh, a ton, a ton of headway if you use the StumbleUpon. With AdWords, you know, for something like where you're building, it would probably be very expensive to start to test. Right. Um, now, when you, when you launched, when you said for your first version and you sent emails, I mean, did you do anything like provide a, um, a, 
a discount with an expiration date. One thing that Rob Walling had mm-hmm. suggested, which that was a great idea, he says, okay, when you when you have your email list, let's say you have a thousand people waiting, and you launch, what you want to do is have like a two or three day uh, limited discount. So, okay, anybody who signs up within the first forty eight or seventy two hours gets you know gets it for this price, which is discounted off what we think our real price is, and it's probably going to be much lower than we may set the price at. Um, mm-hmm. And that will do two things. I mean, one, it'll get people to act right away. So if, if you'll be able to find out people have real interest, they're not just kind of poking around for the hell of it. Yep. But it obviously gets you money in the door and kind of proves things out to you. Like, okay, this is real. We're not just, uh, we're not fooling ourselves. Yep. Uh, no, we didn't. And I regret not doing it. If any, that's the only thing I regret not doing as part of our plan because we, we actually worked with a bunch of our customers who were companies who are launching products and have seen the way that they've used that same uh, tactic or strategy right. that Rob described, and it works really well. And so I regret not doing it. Yeah, the, actual page, the actual page itself, sorry, Jason, the actual landing page itself, does that in any way say this is just a test, or does that actually say this is the product, learn more, and then you get to that page and it says this is just a test? I mean, how, yeah, how do you we, present we that page? Yeah, we experimented with every variation, right? So some of them would say, we're just gathering feedback. Very clear about that. Some of them would say, this is the product. You know, it's about to launch. And here are the three benefits. And maybe here's a, a mock-up of a screenshot. And when they would mm-hmm. click the learn more section, we'd say, hey, we're not, we're not ready yet. You know, if you leave your email address here, we'll tell you when we launch this product. Uh, and then, you know, other ones would be more detailed. And would go, you'd go through multiple pages. And then we would... Uh, try to you know connect with you, have them leave their email address, and at that point we would tell them, hey, we're just testing this concept. Would you like to uh, influence this product and fill out this survey? And uh, but we're still in the middle of building this thing. Which worked out the best for you of those three? Uh, the one that we stuck with at the end was um, having a single page, and this, and then clicking on when you clicked on the learn more button, actually having a light box show up. And in there, capturing the email address and telling them that uh, we'd let them know. We'd notify them as soon as it was launched. Right. So kind of the simple, was, simple is better. Short yeah, simple. simple was way better. And uh, that one uh, is the one that we ended up using the most. And, and did, it say, did it say on that page, this is a test or this is the product? Uh, no, it didn't. It, on, this, on the page, it said, this is a product. So this is the product, and then learn more, and then get their email address. Exactly. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. And, well, okay, so that's such... Now, how long was it before you started testing before you actually launched? And and the reason I ask is, like, okay, so you build up an email list. One thing Rob Walling had suggested um, was, you know, at least don't go more than two to three months. I think he said two months before sending out some kind of interim email saying that we're making progress, here's what's going on, maybe here's a, a screencast of you know, what it's looking like, you know, stay tuned. Yep. Um, uh, we went six months, but we okay. were, we were emailing in between that, uh, in, in between the, um, you know, when they captured and, uh, and then later on. So we were sending out like a monthly newsletter. We were sending out screenshots of, you know, the product as we were building it. And we were inviting, uh, people one by one into, uh, into the test. So that and, and and did that help? Do you think that helped sort of I don't know push up int- pick up interest or what did that achieve for you? Uh, I think it definitely helped on the pick up interest. I think it, you know we would get emails from certain people when we were sending out pictures of the screenshot. Um, 
that we're super interested in, right? Those are like right. the super motivated people. And so they were raising their hands yet again, like, can I get in? Can I get in? And, uh, and then we would prioritize those folks, right? And let right. them in first. And they were the ones who would give us the most feedback. And so could you give us an example of like an outline example of a typical newsletter that you'd send out? Uh, it was different every month, but it was basically like uh, behind the labs type of, behind the, uh, in the labs kind of, a newsletter. It would say things like, hey, we're, you know, we're making progress, we're building, you know, here's where we are. We have this cool new feature and we'd show maybe a screenshot of, uh, of the new feature we were building. Love your feedback on this. We would have links to surveys in there. Uh, we would actually um, invite people to, um, who were interested in doing phone interviews and so we did a ton of phone interviews, ton of Skype interviews and uh, it was, and that was kind of what helped us determine where we were getting closer to product market fit, you know, the type of people and the amount of time that they were willing to dedicate to something. You know? How do you determine who to listen to? Because, I mean, often when you talk about, when you talk to customers, they, they actually don't even know <laughs> what's right for them, right? Yeah, yeah <laughs> so, absolutely. So how do you kind of weed out which ones you should listen to and which ones you shouldn't? Uh, you know, for us, it was, you know, the ones that look like um, had tried to solve the solution today. So we would ask them questions like, what are you using today? What, do you, what kind of products are you using? And we'd say, oh, they're actually paying for products. So this is, some, this is a pain, right? And uh, they're spending, how much time are you spending trying to solve this each week? I'm spending whatever, 10 hours. Wow, that's a real pain for this, for this person. And so then we would reach out to them uh, on a phone call or through Skype. And then we would interview them some more. And we would start to have people who were, again, marketers, who would get on the phone on Skype. And then they would actually have multiple people from their company sitting in on these calls, right? Not cheap for them to be spending all this time. And having sold into marketers before I compete, uh, we had spent most of our time trying to get anyone to care, you know, to even have a conversation with us. And here we were, you know, we didn't have a product yet. Uh, We had interest. We had multiple people on the other end of the phone. And it was really like, we're the right... what we thought as the right type of customers willing to spend a lot of time with us. Uh, that was the biggest kind of like pain indicator for us. Right. So two things about this are interesting. One is, okay, I've had a, I've had a conversation with, uh, I've had this type of conversation with several people, um, mm-hmm. uh, I guess listeners of our podcast who wondered, well, is it really worth me spending time um, trying to build up an email list before launch. Like mm-hmm. the way I've done it so far is I've just been writing some blog posts, hoping they get traction on Hacker News or other places. And then at yep. the bottom of the post, I say, hey, by the way, I'm recruiting um, beta testers for AppIgnite, you know, and, um, and I've been about a 5% uh, people who read the blog post come in and actually sign up. And, mm-hmm. you know, obviously writing a blog post that's going to be good enough to get any traction is going to take, you know, anywhere from two to four hours of work, at least for me. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the objection is, well, you know, why am I spending time writing that? I should just work on the product and then launch the product and then kind of start reaching out to people then. And according to Rob, you know, you know Walling, I mean, it's, it seemed to mm-hmm. me to make a lot more sense to build up that list. I mean, f- my first question to you was, I mean, are you, do you think that is the right approach? Start marketing early and building up this email list and communicating with people? Yeah, I think it's the best thing that we did uh, for our launch because we dev- allowed us to one, learn a ton from these folks and um, get some people who were interested in testing out the kinky, uh, the, 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 the beta, you know, that right. was all falling apart and with all the kinks in it. And then um, 
the, the most important part about it in the end was that we ended up building a relationship with these folks and, uh, you know, we got a lot of customers out of it. And, and, you know, even though they've been customers now for four months, a lot of these folks, um, we've had a relationship for a much longer time. And so they're much willing, much more willing to give us, uh, to spend time with us, have, you know, um, have conversations with us and they feel like they've actually been, and they have, you know, influence the creation of this product. So we have a totally different relationship with those folks versus someone who might just find us today. And they, they've, they're emotionally invested in the product because they've spent the time over months, and in our case, um, actually giving us feedback and helping us build the product together. So this is, you know, their product. So you start, you start with obviously getting people through StumbleUpon and through blogs and stuff, but then once they're there, I think the key point here is once you get people who show interest, however they find out about it, is that you build a relationship with them through follow-ups, through an email, like this is how we're doing if you want to find out more, right? I mean, it's not really a matter exactly. of what they first heard exactly. of it. You, you build up the relationship, you have phone calls with them, you show them you know, how you're doing and, and let them critique that, critique that, and you know, it's just like any normal relationship. Right. It just builds up over time. Yeah, because here, here's, here's the thing. I mean, I, OK, this is really good for me because, you know, I've been collecting I've been building email lists for probably a couple two and a half months or whatever. And I got I got like mm-hmm. what's about 700 people. And mm-hmm. I, I'm you know, I have a lot of work I want to do. And I think I can get into the thousands if I spend a little more time. Um, but I haven't sent on any communications, which, is, you know, Rob Walling had suggested I do. And it sounds like yep. what you're doing, which is like not just saying, hey, we're making progress, stay tuned, but let us tell you about what we're working on. This is some cool new features and also taking surveys and even more what you're talking about, which is getting feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, getting feedback and building that relationship because you don't want that to uh, – most people are not going to remember, you know, two months from now that they signed up for your – your program for your uh, your beta or for your launch right. notification, and uh, and so you don't want to sour that relationship. Yeah, and so and the second thing is, which I've found to be true, and I've read this about a cognitive bias, is that if mm-hmm. you want somebody to be invested in a relationship, it, it you would think that it would make more sense for you. If I if I do you a favor, then mm-hmm. like if I say, okay, Dave, I want David, I want to hook David into a relationship. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do him a favor. It turns mm-hmm. out people are somewhat suspicious of that, but yep. what happens also is that when, when, if you do a favor for me, then you're vested in my success, right? Yes. It's like, I'm exactly. already invested, so damn it, Jason better succeed. Otherwise, that time I put mm-hmm. into it is kind of a waste, right? Which seems kind right. of... I think you're totally right. You know, so you want them to invest. And I know with my first companies, I noticed that when we would sell our software to companies and our little, our little startup, they became invested in the story, right? They wanted, they mm-hmm. influenced it, like you said, they felt like they built it because of their advice. They're like, this, it's like when people find a little independent band that they're listening to, like, yeah, I listened to those guys and I was one of the first 20 people to listen to it. So it's like, they're part of the story, they're invested in you, you know, all that. I think that goes along with what you're saying about building that relationship. Yes, I think you, you uh, mentioned the key part there, which I left out, which is they're investing in your story, right? right? That's what people are interested in, right? They're not interested in your product, right? They're interested right. in the story behind it, you know, how it's going to help them, uh, the, how it's going to make their life better. It's not the product that they're emotionally attached to. It's the story, and the story takes more than just the product. It takes, you know, building up this relationship and trust. Right. So just out of curiosity, what... Do, do you have a preference or feel that one of those methods is better at capturing emails? I mean, do you prefer to get emails captured through blog 
posts that you write about entrepreneurialism or whatever, or do you prefer to capture them through this product approach? Um, I'll take them any way I can, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you know, I think if you can get them through email, I mean, not through email, through uh, blogging, those are probably the most meaningful because those are the ones who are probably going to keep checking back on you, right? Because they okay. read your blog, so they have a more one-to-one relationship with you already versus someone who came in through an advertising channel who might not know, uh, you know who you are, who's Jason. I have no idea. Uh, so they're a little bit less uh, involved. But um, you know, it depends on the segment uh, that you're going after. So we, we would have people who you know, might be great uh, folks who read my blog, which is really around startups, but that's not really, startup founders are not, you know, are the people that we're selling to, right? We don't sell to startup founders. Exactly, because that's something I've found quite a lot with Plugio is I've had a few hits on Hacker News and Dig and Reddit and stuff, but basically it's converted to absolutely zero conversions because these people aren't interested in using a Twitter you know, client, a Twitter productivity tool. No, not at all. Not at all. So the best thing is if someone, uh, if your blog uh, that they found you on and they, they signed up for is directly related to, to the business, then I think that's the best solution. Uh, but in yes. our experience, if um, people who came in through, through my personal blog or one of my co-founders' blogs who weren't marketers, there's not going to be uh, great signups for us. Now, uh, uh, something I think would be interesting to find out about, okay, I've noticed you, you don't have a free plan and your, your uh, free trial is 14 days. So the mm-hmm. question is, um, I guess freemium was never probably really you know, a part of your strategy, right? You were never going to have a free, a free plan to pull people in. Is that right? Correct. Or did you ever experiment with that as an idea, like a real low-end free version? Or, did, or was that, would that just diminish the offering and somehow? They- <laughs> no, we never did f- we never did free. We do have free tools, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like button generators, and we have a cool button generator. We have a cool A-B oh. testing calculator. We have a bunch of other cool tools that we're working on that we give away for free and always will be free. But for us, um, free never made sense, you know, because um, we couldn't come up with a free offering that our market, again, our market is marketers. And so marketers are very different than maybe you and I, who are developers, right. or more technical, who are going to spend some time uh, using a free tool. The, you know, our folks are working within mid-size or big-size businesses. They're not out trying free tools. So um, it, it, we just never, maybe we will someday, we could never come up with a scenario that, um, where they cared enough. And again, right. the other problem was that uh, for them, you know, doing anything is a huge investment in time. And, um, and so, you know, that's where you have the, we would have the signaling issue where um, they need to be investing a lot of money in, in this product uh, in order to then uh, warrant spending their time um, using it. Right. And it's 14 <laughs> days for your, for your free trial. No, is this something you start with 30? I mean, is 14 days the kind of thing where if, you, if it's shorter, people, it keeps it active in their mind and they act on it sooner as opposed to just like, well, I got a whole month, I'll get back to it? Yeah, that's what we found, and, but we're going to change it. So, you know, we introduced the 14-day concept back when we had the $29 and $49 plans, the lower-end plans. And right. there we thought it made sense because, um, you know, there was – you know, we had low plans that they could upgrade to uh, if they were interested in. So we wanted to give them a quick snapshot of what we could do uh, and then see if they were interested in and 
and not forget us. Uh, but you know, now that we're more in midsize and larger customers, um, we're going to do away with the 14 day trial because 14 days actually, uh, increases anxiety for that type of customer, right? Someone in a large company cannot do anything in 14 days. Uh, and so we're just adding to that anxiety. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, uh, go on, Justin. Uh, well, you know, actually, one other thing I want to say. It was interesting you said you gave away some free tools as opposed mm-hmm. to a free version of your product because it's almost like you're achieving the same effect without signaling that they that the product in some way has some cheap version that's usable. I mean, yep. you know, it's almost like it's like 37 Signals not giving away a free version of Basecamp, but you could use some cheap version of, of Backpack or something or whatever. But it, you still know, you're still aware of Basecamp. You still could recommend yep. it to people if, if someone says, oh, we need a project management app. I mean, it, it achieves the same effect without diminishing the product itself. Mm-hmm. There's, that's, uh, there are some other large, uh, some other companies who do that. I think Altison do that as well. Atlassian. Uh, with the, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, sorry. With their, yep. with their product suite, they do that same thing where they'll allow like one user to have a free account. Yep. And then, but then they they sell the large, you know, ten thousand dollar contracts mm-hmm. on top of that. Interesting. Um, well, just you want to ask you more questions on this, or we want to switch switch gears? No, I did. I, there was something I wanted to ask, but now it's completely slipped my <laughs> my mind. Okay, uh, but it was it was a really burning question, but now all of a sudden it's gone. <laughs> I'm sorry, I probably my fault. Well, all right. Well, let me let me ask you this then. I, one thing I noticed that you guys are located up in uh, Ma- Massachusetts in a sort of a small town. Right. Oh yeah, we're an hour north of uh, Boston right now. So uh, how did how did that happen? As opposed to being located in Silicon Valley or even just like say Boston itself. Uh, I live in I live in this town. <laughs> well, how did you end up? Oh, where he lives is where the business is. Uh, how did you end I up? Married. Boston's gonna move. You got married, and your wife. Yeah, is, uh, my is my in laws actually li- no, they are in um, New Hampshire, but they're close to to this town, so they're like fifteen minutes away. So that's how I ended up living here. But my last co- my compete was actually in right in the heart of Boston, uh, in the Back Bay area, and um, so I did that for a while. Um, but then when I started Performable, my other two co-founders also lived in this area. And okay. so, and we weren't going to hire, we knew we weren't going to hire anyone for the first six months and we didn't. And so we just ended up, uh, starting a little office here. And, uh, but you know, come January, we'll actually be moving into Cambridge. And oh, really? So you feel like you kind of have to be in the big, in a, in a more central area to, to, to hire people. Is that the reason? Yes, and actually, uh, probably half of our team, we're 10 people, actually okay. do commute up from Boston today. I actually did have a question for you, and it's a bit of a, maybe an off-the-wall one, but Jason's product, App Ignite, uh, is a product that allows people to, without, as Jason described, without any software experience, to basically create websites. Mm-hmm. Web applications. Um, web applications. Well, it's a different. It's not like a, you know, create a website. No, no, you're right, for, yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just wondering, like, just a gut feel with regard to signaling for a product like that. Yeah. What do you think? How you much they pricing? charge for it? Yeah, I guess pricing and different, you know, is that going for small individuals? Is that going for mediums, you know, small companies? I mean, how, how's that? Small individuals? Yeah, small yeah, individuals. Short people, you know, be under 5'3". <laughs> short people. Yeah. yeah. I would, well, yeah, just well, what, I would think what, it's do you think for yeah. uh, businesses. Right. Mm-hmm. Is my knowing nothing about the company, I'd say it'd be focused at businesses and I would focus in and on um um kind of mid more mid sized companies, smaller mid sized companies where you have people within divisions or groups who are frustrated because they can't actually do anything on their own. Kind of like the the user base that um uh what's their, that company called? Like FileMaker Pro back in long time ago. Um 
kind of penetrated early on was this uh, an access with Microsoft, this, you know, right. corporate person who was frustrated, who couldn't do anything on their own. And suddenly this gave them the power to not have to bother their IT or development team. And so they were liberated. And then that ultimately, they ended up creating even smaller versions so that they could do the same thing for small businesses. But I would, I probably started that mid-size because they have time, they have money, they're frustrated today. And uh, whereas in the on the small end of the small business spectrum, I'd say uh, they don't have time, and uh, I don't know how you educate them quickly on this. Right. So it'd be a different thing to say, "Hey, my cousin who works at Fidelity, we use this awesome tool. I developed my own app, and I didn't have need any developers telling their friend who is you know owns a small business." I'd say that'd be a great way to to have the product. Um, you know, go viral, if you will. Right. Do you think about pricing so that someone in a in a company doesn't need to get approval to use their credit uh, card hu- to buy it? Huge. That was a a huge uh, thing that we spent a lot of time in uh, at Compete. Actually, when we came up with our premium plans, and so you know, you can get a premium plan today for one ninety nine, two ninety nine, four ninety nine. Uh, at compete.com and we spend a lot of time go- um, testing pricing to see you know and talking to our uh, potential customers to see like what were the thresholds that they could expense without having right. to talk to I their see. boss <laughs> and that, that's how we came up with that pricing uh, no that is key so keep it to some point where someone could expense it on their corporate, corporate credit card and not have to talk to anybody about that and that's usually what what are those numbers usually uh, we found that it was under $1,000 uh, at the okay. high end. And per, is that per month or per is month. that per, per year? Per month. I see. And okay. uh, yeah. a lot of people, a lot of corporate credit cards have very small monthly limits and right. they get exceeded pretty quickly. And so, you know, the sweet spot was really uh, around the $500 range, three to $500 range was easy for them to expense. Right. And, and it sounds like... Um, you know, we're talking. I remember listening to an interview with uh, one of the founders of Wufu, the web form. Oh yeah, creator. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, he said he said in the interview that the, I think they get a majority of their income comes from the premium. They're they're more expensive uh, accounts. <laughs> that actually um, the cheaper accounts not only did not make as much money, but it takes a lot more customer support. So oh, yeah. in some ways, it's better. I mean, maybe you can start out cheaper because if your product's a little rough around the edges and you're just trying to get things worked out and you have less in the line if you're charging a little less money. You know, if, you're some, if someone's paying $1,000 a month and there's some problems, I mean, it's going to be hell to pay. And then if yeah. someone's paying $30 a month. But you can mm-hmm. work your way up that chain and you say, okay, we're getting more expensive, more expensive as, a, as the product gets more um, solidified and less buggy mm-hmm. and cleaner and all these kinds of things. So it seems to me that you want to work your way there, like start cheaper, work your way there. Is that reasonable? Uh, no, I think, uh, I think it's the opposite. What, what I've learned is that the people who are, and it goes back to the customer type. So uh, the people who are paying the higher price plans, especially right. for us in the early days, were more forgiving. Right, mm. and because they're they're used to it, they're used to having to coordinate with multiple teams. They know they might be the one holding up the 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 project, and so they're more used to this process, and they're more forgiving, and they have they also have a lot more other things to focus in on, and so uh, they were the ones who actually um, were lower support costs for us 
because they required less handholding. And even when there was a problem, they were the more the ones who were more understanding versus when we had the twenty nine and forty nine dollar plans where it might be as you know, one person business or realtor or, you know, those kind of businesses where that money is very meaningful to them and um they don't have a lot of things distracting them. They would take up a large amount of our support time, right? Those are our highly unprofitable customers. And, you know, because this wasn't their day job, we thought they're just going to churn at some point because they're going to get distracted by something else. So the high churn risk, low level of patience, and high support costs is what we found. Wow, that is interesting. That's definitely something yeah. to think about, especially if, if, if your product is at all complicated. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, those, uh, and you've probably seen it working with people day to day, those people who are a little bit more sophisticated know that problems happen, right? They have a more realistic uh, set of expectations. Right. Huh. Yeah, you know, it's funny how that works out. <laughs> <Did you think? laughs> That's something to think about. I'm telling you something, this, this show, has, uh, there's been so much great information imparted in this show. And a lot for you, Jason, especially, it's very relevant to your business. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Thank you. Yeah, well, I appreciate you uh, uh, coming on and, and helping us out, you know, with uh, this information because it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, all about the uh, landing page stuff and the analytics and launching, yep. and I don't know. It's just, um, yeah, it's just all great. Yeah. Uh, you can only you can only learn it by doing all the wrong things. So I've done enough of them, <laughs> so I can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Justin, did you? Uh, oh, the last thing I should ask you about your launch. When you actually launched, did you ever do like the TechCrunch thing, or you know, trying to get Read Write Web Mashable to write about you, or just was that not even something you worried about? No, I, I, I actively and still have avoided it. Um, okay. So you know, we haven't been. I don't think we've been on any of those, and especially TechCrunch. I had, uh, I tried hard not to get mentioned in there, especially when we raised money, um, because I thought. It wasn't our audience, right? It was a distraction right. for us. And uh, actually, that's one of my things that I talk about as, a, as a, when I give talks is that I think, I think most startup people should not, I don't, think, I don't think people should spend a lot of time reading TechCrunch. I don't read TechCrunch right. at all, I'll tell you that. And because I think, especially when you're in the middle of starting a company, uh, you should not become obsessed about every little tiny little competitor out there, every little startup competitor, because... It, you know, they have no traction just like you. Why are you spending all your time reading TechCrunch obsessed about uh, competitor number, you know, 32 who's just come out with some little app? You know, I spend my time worried about Omniture. How can I take, you know, how can we beat Omniture? I don't want to hear about every little web analytics startup that comes out there. Have you heard about disruption theory and Thomas Thurston's take on that? No, no. That's something that you might be interested in. We we did a show, um, I can't remember the number of the show now, but anyway, it's disruption theory with Thomas Thurston. And really what it talks about is how um, he, he he's basically created a a model for predicting how successful a startup it's will be. It's based on okay. Clayton Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma. He worked with Clayton Christensen okay. up at Harvard for like a year as a fellow, and it's a mathematical or statistical model based on those theories. So go on, Justin. Yeah, and essentially what, what's what been shown to be true uh, pretty much 85%. 87, 87% <laughs> of the time. <laughs> is that if, if, if you are worse and cheaper, basically being worse and cheaper is the way to um, succeed. Well, <laughs> worse, cheaper, and always getting better. 
yeah, yeah. worse, cheaper, and always getting better, right? That's awesome. And maybe, Jason, maybe you could explain explain it a little bit deeper. Yeah, well, that. see, the thing was is that the, the reason being, okay, you have two options: either it's a blue water strategy or a, a red water, yeah. red ocean, blue ocean. So if it's blue ocean, yeah. you can yeah, you can always go out to a new product category, and that has its own you know uh, pitfalls. But if you're in a red ocean and you're competing against established uh, you know incumbents, then you the tendency is to say, oh, well, we're going to be better than them. But that's a problem uh, because when you're better than the established incumbent, they're going to look at you as a threat and they're going to try and take yeah. you down. But yeah. if they look at you as cheaper and worse, they're like, ah, that's crap. You know, we're not going to lower prices. Yeah. We're not going to worry about them because they suck. But yep. you keep getting better and pretty soon you have so much momentum and, and then as yeah. you get better and then you suddenly are better and then it's too late. Because you've, you've built up your customer base. Right, yep. so I don't know, yeah. I love that. I love that theory. I'm going to, uh, I've already bookmarked that page. Yeah, because yeah, I would have seen that. Obviously, that would apply in a lot of ways to what you guys are doing with Omniture, right? Absolutely. Also, also to what you just said as well. I mean, to basically just ignore your, essentially ignore your competitors. Yeah. You know, yeah, I just, think, just build your product out. Because I meet so many startup founders who are literally paralyzed, right? Reading TechCrunch and whatever all day long. That's all they do. They don't spend any time talking to customers. They don't spend time building their product. They're obsessed about someone stealing their idea uh, and doing this, doing it, and being featured on TechCrunch. And you know what? For most of us, including uh, you know, for our product, our customers don't read TechCrunch. Who cares, right? Uh, right. They're never going to read TechCrunch. Why do I care about TechCrunch? And, and, and then uh, whatever the story is, it's off in you know, 15 minutes anyway with the next story and, it's, and the people exactly. that are gone. I mean, I wrote a blog post called Forget the TechCrunch Launch, which got a, some pretty good traction. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. that was that. my that's first blog post really, right? <laughs> yeah, that was, that was our active strategy. <laughs> right. David, on, on your blog, your tagline is, I like making something from nothing, which I, I really liked. And I wondered if you could maybe just give us a quick little insight into, your, into what the meaning for that is for you. <laughs> it's my, uh, it's, a, it's it, what best describes me, right? So I'm uh, an obsessed builder. So I cannot do anything halfway. I'm fully 100% or not. And, uh, and so throughout my life, it's been startups, of course. I love building businesses and I love the whole creation uh, aspect of starting, you know, from literally nothing and starting to, to build something up. But, you know, it's been everything. It's been uh, woodworking. I've been into woodworking. Every hobby that I have carries <laughs> the same theme, right? It's like woodworking, uh, gardening, you know, so it's, your, it's the David Cancel, the David Cancel fractal. This exactly. basically describes you. Yes, exactly. I like making <laughs> all the way some. down and all the way, all the way down and all the way up. It's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's nothing. I don't know. To me, there's there's few things in life that are as satisfying as creating something from nothing. Oh I mean, yeah, just, and the the minute that someone says that was awesome, thank you, right? That is the best yeah. feeling ever. I mean, even as something as simple as a blog post. I mean, I got a kick out. I just started blogging. I've been meaning to for like six years. <laughs> and I finally got <laughs> off my butt a few weeks ago and wrote my first one. And wrote, I've written a few at this point. And it's like, if you know, it's, it's sort of a pain actually having to sit down and write one because you're just like, ah, this is work. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, even doing is. something as simple as a blog post is very satisfying, I've discovered. And, and someone, you know, commenting and saying, wow, that was a great blog post, right? But to me, that's the best feeling ever. Yeah. And we get that from the from the 
podcasts all the time. It's that, you know, just hearing back from our listeners when they, you know, will just even leave a, a simple comment like, hey, great show, guys. Loved it. I mean, you're like, awesome. That was great. I'm like, let's do another show now. <laughs> you know, <just> <laughs> that's, uh, that's why I keep doing this for that feeling that you get at that moment. That's why I keep starting companies. And, and software is the ultimate because you build a software, a piece of software. It's not like a book or a movie or something where they read it and appreciate it sort of one time. It's over and over changing their life. They're using it over and over again. You know, this thing that you built that came from nothing is changing people's lives with they, how they live on a regular basis. And that's an amazing thing. And the people you've never met. I mean, when I, my first company, when we sold the software and we would go into, this is actually before the internet really. And you would actually go and visit their office and you'd maybe be upgrading the software and you'd see people around the office sitting around using it. And, it was hilarious because they'd never met me, and they're talking about the software as this this thing that that exists yeah. out in the world. You're like, that is so weird. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, one that. of the things we built was this sort of simulator. That's it was for yeah. a simulated trading system to teach. Oh yeah, yeah. Guys had to trade, and what's hilarious is they they were using the simulator, and they were they were sure that it was like cheating them. <laughs> that it was like, yeah, it knows what I'm trying to do, so now it's cheating against me. <laughs> Like it's not. I'm telling you, it's <laughs> that's awesome. It, it gave it a personality. It was like this evil personality that was out to get them. <laughs> that's awesome. But I love it, Jason. I think that um, I think this has been a, a jam-packed show full of interesting information. Yeah, it's very valuable. It's been a great show, and David, it's been worth all the uh, the uh, misscheduling <laughs> and rescheduling that we had to go through to get you on. It was um, it was. Uh, Great show. I, I learned a lot personally. I just, I'm, I've had a bunch of notes here that uh, of things I'm going to have to look into doing based on what you've uh, your advice. So, thanks Thank so much, you for guys. Coming. I really appreciate it. And sorry again for all the hoops we had to jump through, but I loved being on your show. And uh, thanks for having me. Nope. Thank you right. very much. All right, that's a wrap. We're out. Sorry about the initial screw-up. That was all Justin's fault. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no problem at all. I'm sorry. That's sort of my standard uh, disclaimer. It's all Justin's fault. I'm just going to put that on my blog. I think I was actually having two crowns done that day. Yeah. <laughs> in the dentist. Oh, my God. And this, the pain still hasn't gone away. Oh, man. Oh, and yeah. it, One thing you have to learn about Justin is that he whines yeah. a lot. So just yeah. kind of used to that. <laughs> I'm used to that. I'm uh, okay. alongside many developers, so that's all I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, developers do wine a lot. The funny thing is, is that that Jason really is just all those things that he's describing. I am, but I don't, you know, I don't like to say that about him. I'm, I don't have. To, I'm not that low class. I mean, yeah. I'm just be, be really bad. Like I'm just keeping it real, man. You know, okay. it's all about transparency. It's the new web. <laughs> <laughs> right. Play games.